All right, so some of you were like, did they just say free Bluebell ice cream? Yes, that's what we said. Maybe some of you saw it, but uh, we invite you to grab some ice cream on the way out if your diet allows you that sort of thing. So enjoy it. Glad you're here this morning. And just uh, a reminder, this has been our second week where we have an attempt to give those who serve week in, week out in our Uh, worship ministry, both the musicians and those who serve in our tech ministry. They've had last week and this week off. Matt and Shirley have carried us here, and so it's been a sweet time, and I'm very grateful for them, but we'll have back to our full bands now again beginning next week. So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, About a month ago, we began looking together at this idea of Jesus encountering religious practices and how some of the religious practices he was encountering were like square pegs intended to go into round holes. They they just didn't fit any longer. And so those religious practices have been centered around, in Mark chapter 2, three questions asked of Jesus or his followers. The first one was this, why does Jesus associate with sinners? And that might seem like an unusual question, but you have to understand that for, in some sense, all of their existence, the Jewish people have seen themselves as intended to be separate from all the other nations. They were not to intermarry uh, among any other nation. They were to be among themselves and among themselves only. And then Jesus comes along and he begins to interface and interact with folks who were Jew and Gentile, those who were religious and those who were irreligious. And so people were definitely put off by the fact that he was associating outside the normal boundaries that were considered permissible and right. And Jesus answers this question of why does he associate with sinners very simply with this. That's who I came to serve. I came to serve sinners. Not just Jewish folks, but all. That's who I came to save. Then a second question was asked, not of Jesus specifically, and that was this. Why don't your followers, Jesus, fast like other religious people? Remember, Jesus was not against fasting. In fact, what, you'll, what we learned in one of the early encounters was that he fasted far longer than probably any of us who are gathered in this hour this morning. So he wasn't against fasting, but he was not requiring himself or his followers to follow the religious practice of fasting twice a, li- a week like the rabbinical tradition had suggested. And they wanted to know why. And Jesus gave a few examples of why they were not, and it ultimately came down to this expression, because new wine can't be contained by old wineskins. Those in that culture would have fully understood if you put new wine in old wineskins that had already been stretched, as the new wine expanded, it would burst the old wineskins and you'd lose the new wine. Therefore, Jesus said what they already understood, that new wine required what? New wineskins, fresh wineskins, which is great winemaking principle. It's just, okay, what's that have to do with following Jesus? 
And his point was this. He had said, we don't fast when the bridegroom's present because that's not a time for fasting. And he was identifying that by his presence, there was a new reality that could not be held by old wineskins. That Jesus was identifying himself as the new wine. And as the new wine, the old religious practices could not contain him. The new spiritual reality was Jesus, and the new spiritual reality of Jesus required new spiritual practices, which led then to the third question. Why don't they keep the Sabbath rules? Because of all of their religious practices, the keeping of the Sabbath was one of the most central. They had rule upon rule upon rule about keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus nor his disciples were following their rules. And they wanted to know why. And he answered the question with four answers. But the third one, excuse me, the fourth of the four was the one that actually changes everything, where he said, we don't keep the religious practices that you've defined because I am, Jesus speaking said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I don't serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves me. I am greater than your Sabbath practices. And so he said, yes, the Sabbath is holy, but the Lord's day, the Sabbath is actually every day, not just one out of seven. The Lord's day is every day. And therefore, every day, not just the Sabbath, should be a day in which you live for the Lord. Every day, regardless of your occupation, ought to be a day in which you work for the Lord. And every day is a day that you ought to rest in the Lord. I'm bigger than a single day. So you get the idea. The challenge for us in this day is to say, not what do we do on Sunday, but who do we live for every single day? So you might be thinking, well, my religious practices I attend on Sunday. And Jesus is going, no, you're missing it. I am new wine. I'm bigger than that. The question isn't what you do today. The question is, who do you live for tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and next Sunday? Because I am Lord of the Sabbath. So all these three, three weeks rolled up into this summary. The old wineskins of isolation first. Why is he eat with sinners? A tithe, the idea that 10% of our income belongs to the Lord. And an idea of a Sabbath, that one day out of seven is the Lord's day. Those old wineskins cannot contain the new wine of Jesus, right? Why not? Do you capture why? Because he is Lord. Over what? Overall, see, old practices that give him a portion of your time or a portion of your dollars or a portion of the world do not capture or cannot contain the lordship of Jesus 
over all. He is Lord over every nation. It's too small a thing for the Jewish people only. I will say from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, I'm Lord over every nation. I'm Lord over every dollar. I'm Lord over every day. You follow? New spiritual realities require new spiritual practices. Not a day for the Lord, but a life for the Lord. Not 10% to the Lord, but all of it is His, and I'm simply a manager. Not a single nation, but from all nations. The new wine is Jesus, and His Lordship requires every minute of every day of every dollar of every nation. Do you believe in the Lordship of Jesus? Do you believe it? Yeah, this is the new wine. And so I want us, and this might seem a little unusual, that we're into the message now. We are, but the message is the Lordship of Jesus. And I want to ask us to declare our belief in it and submission to it. So I invite you to stand. And together, let's, over north as well, if you would stand, let's declare very personally that he is Lord over all. One name is higher, one name is stronger. Set your heart upon the cross We'll never know the sacrifice you made For all our sin and all our shame You took the nails, took our place No one else could do what you have done One name is higher, one name is stronger, any grave, any throne, Christ exalted over all. And from the grave where death would die, you rose again and brought us life, your reign. Sing your praise, sing your praise. 
Thank you that you have set over all, over every moment of every one of our days, your lordship. We declare you to be worthy of all of our praise. Praise from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. We, deserve, we declare you, Lord, to be deserving of every one of our dollars, that you are our Lord. Would you just tell him there as you stand, Lord Jesus, just quietly in your heart, Lord Jesus, you are, Lord, my life. I invite your full authority into every area. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we get to walk in newness of life according to the greatness of of your glory. And we ask now that you would speak to us as Lord over all. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks. You can be seated. What we just declared in song, and I know that might seem a little weird that we sang right in the middle, but I want us to understand Jesus shows up and speaks intending that we would be changed by him when we encounter him, correct? Yeah, we're not to be the same when we encounter Jesus. So here's the question this morning. It's a fourth question from the passage, but it's not of Jesus or his followers. It's to the people who he has encountered. Are these... Jesus encounters transforming their thoughts and actions. Are they being changed by encountering Jesus? With that question, let's read Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Are they being changed? It says in verse 1, He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. That means it, it didn't function. It was present, it just didn't work. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with, what? anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So what's our question? Are they being transformed by their Jesus encounters? Is his lordship being exercised in their lives? Yes or no? 
Is it fuzzy? No. It's an absolute no. Second question, maybe more important. Am I? Am I being transformed by these Jesus encounters? We started Easter Sunday. Seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? Easter Sunday, we started the Gospel of Mark. And since then, we've looked at encounters with Jesus. Are you being transformed? Is his lordship growing more personal, more real in your life because of encountering him? That's a crucial question because Jesus has come to bring new wine, and therefore that new wine will result in a new practice of exercising lordship in every aspect of life. But that was not happening in them. The question is, is it happening in us? And as I read this text, maybe as we read it together, you're thinking, man, what's wrong with these guys? And then I begin to have that ugly reality of, uh uh-oh, I can see myself in this text a bit. Now, maybe you didn't, but as I read through this text, I was like, what's wrong with them is a little bit of a mirror, an ugly view of what's wrong with me, that the ugly in me, not all of it by any means, but some of it is actually revealed by them. In other words, I can't simply go, wow, that's just crazy, without seeing myself in some of that craziness. Here's what I mean. When you look at the first two verses of Mark 3, it says this, he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So if you're unfamiliar, synagogue is simply they're going to church. So they show up to church, which is a good thing, right? Yes? It's a good thing you showed up here this morning. The question is, why were they there? Well, what does the text say? Why did they come? to watch him in order that they might accuse him, to catch him doing something that they think would be wrong. So two uglies in me. First, the ugly me is revealed when they show up to watch Jesus. I have actually no intent to learn from Jesus. See, I can go, man, that's terrible. But why'd you show up today? Did you you show up to watch or to learn? Or did you just show up because that's what you do on Sunday mornings? I find that for me, the longer, the longer I actually am a Christ follower the more tempting it is to become an observer as opposed to a learner, a responder. We do this thing around here called family groups. Maybe maybe you're in a family group. And many of our family groups, I send questions to, after I prepare the message, I send out to the leaders some questions to talk about application of the text. 
And they always laugh because the first question is always the same. How were you challenged or encouraged by the message this morning or on Sunday? And here's what I've noticed in our family group. Maybe this is true in yours. Great time, people show up, chatty, chat, chat, talk, snack, having a great time. Okay, let's get together and talk. And the first question, all right, so how were you challenged or encouraged this morning? <laughs> Nobody look at the leader. It's like chatter, 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 crickets. That ever happen in your, maybe not. Maybe it's just because I'm in the room and that's really awkward. How were how are you challenged or encouraged? But sometimes it's like we can talk about all sorts of stuff, but when it comes to responding to the scripture, it's like, ah, what? that was like six hours ago. What did we talk about? <laughs> can I encourage you? Next week when you show up, well, first, today when you leave, how about, don't wait till, because probably lots of you aren't going to have family group. It's the holiday weekend. We take it off. But if you have it, or if you don't, today, driving home, at lunch, or if you're by yourself, take out a journal and tell someone, even if it's your journal, how you were challenged or encouraged by the scriptures. In other words, respond to it. React to it as a learner, not just a watcher. Have you found this scripture to be challenging and encouraging? Man, I love the scriptures because one of the things is that I'm just amazed that I have read the Gospel of Mark lots and lots and lots of times through the years. But man, now that I am studying it to teach it, it is so rich, so encouraging, and so challenging. So when I fail to be encouraged or challenged, it's not because this book is weak. It's because of something ugly in me that I have turned into just an observer, not engaged with it. And we can get comfortable with that. And so this week, today... Force yourself to verbalize it to somebody. Now you may go, mm, I'll be glad to ask somebody. Problem with asking somebody is if I ask them, they're going to ask me back. So that's why we don't do that. I think, I think it will change us. I think it would change our families. I think it would change our marriages. If we stop simply showing up to church to watch what happens, to see how good it is, and actually interacted with the scriptures. <coughs> you got a buddy over here. I just made eye contact with him. One of the things I appreciate, he interacts with the scriptures. And he'll often write me, Rabbi, i got a question for you. I'm not a rabbi, but it's kind of, I got a question for you. Interacting with the scriptures. Let's interact with the scriptures. And then come next week. When you walk walk into whatever auditorium we'll walk into next week, 
determined. I'm not here to watch. I'm here to learn. They were watching in order to, what was the second word then in the text? Accuse. Accuse of Jesus doing something that they considered to be wrong. Now, who were they glad was at the service with them? Yeah, they were actually glad that a guy showed up to the service with a widow of the hand because they were excited that Jesus might heal the guy and help him, right? No. They weren't excited he was there to be helped by Jesus. They were excited he was there because he could be a pawn to help them defend their position and accuse Jesus. Is that ugly or what? That's pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly when we're more committed to defending our position, what we want, than helping people. That's pretty ugly. Get fed up with Washington, D.C. sometimes? Yeah. And this is not a political party statement. It's the process that an outside observer, it becomes pretty clear what's so frustrating is it doesn't seem like the core question is what's best for the people of the country. The core question is how do I defend my political party position? Why are they so intended in defending the position as opposed to asking what's best for the country? Why? Because if I don't protect the position, then my personal involvement may be in jeopardy. Now, we can be frustrated all we want at Washington, D.C., but that sort of mentality can go into the church just as easily. And that we show up intending not what would be best for the other people here, but what do I like? And how do I protect what I like? Can I step on a toe or two, maybe? When, when you come into this room or over in North, how do you choose where you sit? According to what would be good for others or what would be good for you? We, we can't do it this second hour in South because we're always too full. But you know what 8 o'clock often looks like? Give me an aisle seat. An aisle seat? Oh, two. Two aisle seats, two aisle seats, two aisle seats, two aisle seats. <laughs> and everybody's like doing a journey to pass the offering plate, doing the journey of the Lord, Lord's Supper. And so I finally told him this morning, if I was an outsider, you know what I would think? I would think you all don't like one another very much. And I actually think they do. They just don't act like it by how they sit. See, they say, that's so small. No, it's a reflection of a mentality. When we walk in the room, who are we thinking about, us or others? Do I see someone who's by themselves that I might engage? I don't mean go sit on their lap. That's awkward. <laughs> but never determine somebody doesn't want somebody to talk to from 30 feet away. 
always introduce yourself and it'll become pretty clear. Thank you. Nice to meet you. You can leave now. Or thank you. Nice to meet you. Glad somebody was actually spoke to me. But we get lost. We show up watching, thinking about ourselves. It's a little bit of the ugly in us revealed by how they showed up. I think we can show up to be learners. I think we can show up to be people who are saying, how can we help, not how can we protect what's comfortable for us? In, the, in sometimes the smallest ways. But we determine who we are sometimes by who we stop and talk to, who we walk by, who we engage and who we ignore. Verse 4, a little more ugly. <laughs> and he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? And what they say? <laughs> it says, they kept their mouths shut. Because that's a hard question. You might get that one wrong. Right? Is that a hard question, folks? <laughs> Come on. Is that a hard question? Oh, okay. Is there an obvious answer? Yeah. And Jesus, put it on a T here. This was not, he wasn't trying to trick them. He wasn't trying to confuse them. He was simply stating the most obvious question possible. Hey, when it comes to the Sabbath, do you think it's better to do good or to do harm? Okay, that might be too hard. Is it better to kill or save a life? Hmm. They're not trying to figure it out. Why are they keeping their mouths shut? Do you know why? Because they can't admit the truth because if they admitted the truth, what would happen? They would be admitting they were wrong, right? And you and I are always quick to admit when we're wrong. <laughs> or maybe, see what I mean? Maybe some of the ugly in us gets revealed by them in this moment. And that ugly in verse 4 is this. When I remain silent in the face of convicting truth. We're not confused. We know it. We just don't want to admit it, right? Can, can I tell you, even my dog Hunter practices this. <laughs> when Hunter has done something wrong, and, and you're fussing at Hunter, you know what she does? She literally, she won't look. Yeah, look at me, dog. It won't. Hunter will not look at me, because why? Because no, they're wrong. Wow, isn't that... Isn't that just absolutely like me? One of my kids in a very recent conversation had some truth put in front of him. I'm keeping this general so you can't zone in and which of my precious kids did this. <laughs> had some truth put in front of him. And they knew it was true. I knew it was true. Jackie knew it was true but they wouldn't speak. 
Come on, speak. Is that right? Yes, it's right. Just can't say it. You have a hard time admitting you're wrong? One of the things, I, when I very first met Jackie at Columbia, obviously I was like, wow, she's an awesome girl, pretty girl, fun. But one of the things as I, as I interacted with her that I liked so much was that she was very willing to verbalize what she was learning and how she needed to change and admit when she was wrong or what she had once thought and now what she... She just... She was not too proud to be responsive. And to her credit, that's still true today. 31 years later of marriage, what was convicting for me is to realize she says she's sorry much more than I do. And she sins a lot more than I do, but no. She's not here right now. <laughs> no, of course not. She's just a lot more willing to, number one, admit it and to verbalize it. And it's an ugly part of my heart that wants to say, I know I was wrong. I'm not going to verbalize admitting it. I'll just do differently. What a proud heart that doesn't want to say, I'm sorry. And I want to do differently. That's, that's the ugly in me. And it's so often, folks, so often, this word, it's not confusing. I seek to, to teach it in a way that makes it clear. And the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. He teaches us. It's just in that moment, are we willing to say, yes, Lord? This is part of why we did the service the way we did this morning. I was saying to you that the new wine of Jesus demands the fact that he is Lord over all, and I wanted us to stand and declare it. And if I could take a snapshot of you sometimes, you, you would be like, wow, we are like, whew. So let's stand and declare. And you're like, really? we got to stand now? This is weird. I don't want us to remain silent in the face of clear truth. So it was a practice, honestly. It was a practice for us to say, we've just said, I ask you, do you believe Jesus is Lord? And a few of you mumbled, yes. So let's stand and declare it. Now, it's one thing to stand and declare in song in church and another thing to go home and live it out, no doubt. But because we may struggle living it out doesn't mean we shouldn't declare it to be true. See, I think sometimes our silence is a protection so I won't be held accountable for what came out of my mouth. I'm going to protect myself. So what was encouraging or challenging you? Yeah, I don't want to say, because somebody might follow up with me or ask me a question, and I'd just like to keep that little piece of information in here. 
Maybe this isn't true for you. It's the, it's the little bit of the ugly in me revealed in that. Very clear, very obvious, unwilling to admit. So what's Jesus think about their silence? Tells you verse 5. What's he think? <laughs> yeah. He's ticked off. Now, after looking around at them, he's going, save a life or, save a life or kill a life. Good or harm. Which is it? Which is it? And he's looking. And now the look turns to My kids would say, Dad doesn't yell, but his eyes are like lasers that will burn holes through you. (laughs) Jesus is absolutely ticked at their unwillingness to acknowledge, you're right, we're wrong. We showed up to watch and accuse. We're the ones that are wrong. Grieved. Why? What's the expression? The hardness of heart. What are indicators of a hard heart? See, I found myself as I was studying the text, I was like, all right, he identifies a hard heart. What's a hard heart? And I started trying to think, what's a hard heart? And I was like, okay, stop it. Hello? The hardness of heart is already revealed by what they've done. Oh, uh-oh. So a hard heart is reflect. Marks of a hard heart are people who show up as watchers, not learners. Part of a hard heart are people who say, uh, I'm interested in myself, not in others. Part of a hard heart is saying, I know it's obvious, and I know it's right, but I will not admit I'm wrong. See, I don't have to make a new list. It's right in the stinking text. Well, I shouldn't call the Bible stinking text. So save your email. It's right there. The text declares what a hard heart is. And so, you understand what I'm saying? What I, what, that moment of, and we'll come back to this, the tipping point in this passage for me was to go, If I see myself as prone to be a watcher, not a learner, and prone to protect my interests versus the interest of others, and I am unwilling to verbalize when I'm wrong, then guess what? What's true about me? I have a hard heart. I don't want to think of myself that way. No, I'm not perfect, but I don't want to think of myself as a hard heart. But here I am in the text. And so uh, the ugly me is revealed when they grieve the heart of Jesus by their hardness of heart. The recognition that I grieve, Jesus, that when my heart is like concrete, So that when truth falls on it, it doesn't break my heart. I break the truth. So I found myself as I was teaching literally last hour, 
with that recognition, all right, Doug, ask yourself the question, when's the last time your heart has been broken? By encountering Jesus in the scriptures. If there's not a brokenness of heart, that's not because this isn't real and active and living. It's a reflection of this, not of this. It's a reflection of who I have become, not what this is. The word of God declares of itself, this is the word inspired by him, and it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. So there's no lack here. It's here. And so, may the Lord make our hearts soft. But that's not, that's not vague. Don't make that fuzzy. To show up, to be right now, not a watcher, a learner. And to, to be thinking, not, not, not some other time, right now, how do I think of other people? And to be thinking right now, what is the Lord saying to me that I need to respond to Him, right? Because the Lord may be speaking to your heart right now. Are you remaining silent or are you even dialoguing quietly in your heart right now? Maybe writing something down right now that the Lord is saying to you. That's soft-heartedness. So, watch what Jesus does. They come in watching, wanting to accuse. They refuse to answer. And what Jesus has done is says, if you're here to watch, then I want you to get a good view. Because what does he tell the man with the withered hand to do? He says to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward first. See, did you miss that? So in other words, if you were out, if he was out in the crowd and they're watching to see what I do, he's like, you want to see what I'm going to do? Let me give you a good view. Come on up, right here, so everybody can see. See, Jesus could have went, oh, they're going to try and get me here. I'm going to just like walk by him and tap his hand and heal him. And they'll go, wow, did he do it? How'd that happen? Jesus was not ashamed to say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I want every one of you to see it clearly. Come on up here. And he has the guy front and center, his hand is, again, withered in the sense of that it's present, but it's non-functional. And he says to the guy, stretch out your hand. And so he stretches it out to Jesus, and he stretched it out, and his hand is restored. Like, physically, visibly, physically, the withered hand becomes a functioning hand right before their very eyes. And they couldn't miss it because Jesus said, come front and center. I want all of you to see the withered to become functional. Is that phenomenal? Yeah, I'm telling you. It has been part of the journey of my own walk with the Lord that I have come to be absolutely convinced that the healing work of God is not in the long past, that the healing work of God continues in our present. And to the praise of the glory of God, we have seen God heal in our midst. But I admit this to you. Thus far, it has not been anything, at least for me, that has been visible, instantaneous 
immediate that I could see a withered hand become functioning. Tumors internally have disappeared. Internal organs that hadn't been functioning are functioning. But I can't see that. They couldn't miss it. Could God still heal in that way today? Last week, one of my first occasions where I was confronted with that. Out in the courtyard, came across an individual with a skin disease. Felt prompted by the Lord to stop in the courtyard. They hadn't come for prayer, but I said, can I pray? And they were delighted. And as I was praying, it occurred to me, this is, this is visible. This is not something internal. This is not something that maybe it will, this will be either we're going to open our eyes and it's gone, or it could go away in two or three days, but, who knows? but it's visible, it's tangible. And it was a good step, my own trusting of Jesus, to say, Lord, you can, I'm not demanding that you must, but you can, so I'm asking that you would heal the disease immediately right now. As far as I could tell, when we opened our eyes, the disease was still present. I haven't stopped asking, shared it with the staff, and we've joined our hearts together in saying, Lord, would you bring healing? If he did, if there was literally this morning a man with a withered hand standing front and center, and we simply said, Lord Jesus, would you heal him? And that withered hand became functioning in our midst. What would you do? Can you imagine? I mean, what would you do? Well, the Pharisees went out and immediately began praising God and telling others of the grace and kindness of Jesus. Wow, you guys actually read the text. No, it doesn't say anything close to that. What it says, and you go, no, that's what I would do. But what do they do? I put it in red because it's just so whack. They went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him. The guy who had taken a withered hand and now made it functioning, they said to that guy, we got to get rid of him. How are we going to destroy him? You say, how could you do that? But can I honestly admit something for us? If a man with a withered hand stood right here and it was healed right in front of you, some of us would rejoice and some of us would go, did that really happen? I'd like to talk to that guy beforehand. I'd like to see him next week. Wouldn't we? I've been there. I was that skeptic. Man, the Lord set me free. And then I experienced telling an individual about somebody's healing. And their response was, well, we'll see how long it lasts. 
And it was like a shot in my gut. And then I was like, whoa, stop. That's who you were. Another shot to the gut. That's still who you are, Douglas. Because within the last year, I've, heard a, I've had a person pray right with me to profess faith in Jesus with just as much of a miracle as someone with a withered hand becoming functional. And as soon as they, yes, as soon as they prayed because of their story, my ugly heart thought, we'll see if he really meant it. I'm serious. That's just ugly. And I'm right there in the text. So we can say all we want. What's wrong with those idiots? What's wrong with them? And then I recognize within myself that I'm often too busy to critique as opposed to rejoice. The tipping point, as I said earlier, in this text is when Jesus is grieved and angered by their silence. And so I don't want us to be silent this morning. I'm going to invite you to make a request to the Lord. Here's the request. Jesus Christ, shine into my night. Drive my dark away till your glory fills my eyes. Jesus Christ, shine into my night. Bind me to your cross where I find life. See, why would I ask him to do that for this Admission. So I'm not what I should be. I haven't sought what I should seek. I've seen your glory, Lord, but looked away. My heart's bent, eyes dim, finest work stained with sin and emptiness has shattered all my ways. So I don't want us to remain silent. I want to invite you to invite Jesus to shine into your dark. Let's stand, and if you would, you don't have to, but if you would declare that request to the Lord, I invite you.
still I often go astray I taste the world, forget your grace You have never failed to bring me back Feel the depths of what you've done Death you died, the victory won You made a way for me Shine into my night, drive my dark away till your glory fills my eyes. Jesus Christ, shine into my night, bind me to your cross, I find life. if you would declare before the Lord now very specifically darkness that he has revealed, ugliness that he has revealed this morning don't be silent confess it to him your promises, Lord, are yes and amen. So thank you. If we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for pouring your spirit into our hearts so that we might walk in newness of life. And so, Lord, thanks for revealing the ugly, that we would walk the beauty of your grace and the beauty of your truth. We invite you continue to speak to our hearts, Lord, to the praise of your glory. Jesus Christ, shine into my night, drive my dark away. Till your glory fills my eyes Jesus Christ, shine into my night Bind me to your cross Where I find love I find love Only Remind you that if we can pray with you, it's really one of our greatest privileges, whatever auditorium you're in, that we could pray and allow the Spirit of God to minister to your heart in some way specifically. That'd be our greatest joy. Thanks for being here, and would you go walk in newness of life? God bless. Good morning, Bible.